Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. In Genesis, God is interested in the oneness of humans in the land, so much so that from a modern perspective, you might say that the scriptural God is not only anti-institution, but anti-family values. Not only Jerusalem, not only the temple, not only religious leaders and government, but even Jesus' family is broken up in the hope of the coming kingdom, wherein all the families of the earth will dwell together. In that new situation, the brothers of Jesus are any human beings who hear the words of his Father and keep them. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, verses 12 to 15. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 425 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Last week, we talked about that famous expression, who moved the cheese? And the theme keeps unfolding in the Gospel of Matthew. The religious institution, the religious official, the religious leader wants to be the reference. The religious leader wants to control who says what. The religious leader wants to be the one who has Jesus in his pocket and says, here, let me share Jesus with you. The religious leader wants to say, come and see, I have Jesus. That's the game people play. We all know it's true. That's why everybody fights to have really clever messages on their church signs. That's why everybody does Facebook posts that explain why they're right or why they're special, or why they're savvy, or why there's something unique and distinct about their church or their denomination. Everybody plays the marketing game. And I'm here to tell you that if your big strategy with your parish council is how to get the word out about how great your church is, you have already shut your parish out of the kingdom. There is no marketing plan. There is no story. Because while you're hatching your plans, Jesus is already on the move. He is already on the move. He does not need you. He does not need your building. He does not need your institution. He does not need your religious official. He does not need your parish council. He does not need Joseph of Arimathea. He does not need the apostles. He does not need help. Remember the Ark of the Covenant. It can handle the Philistines all by itself. It does not need any help. 
Not only does it not need a building, it does not need you to take care of business. And that's exactly how the resurrected Lord is behaving here in the Gospel of Matthew. I always remind people that the Exodus was a demonstration of what God is able to do when his people don't do anything. He's able to destroy the biggest army on the planet and take all their gold and silver just by softening or hardening their hearts as he wishes. There's nothing a human being can do that he can't, and there's nothing that he wants to do that he won't do. This is how God then acts. We have Mary Magdalene, which it just occurred to me from one of the episodes recently that Mary Magdalene comes from Magdala, which is in Galilee. So Mary from Galilee comes all the way to Jerusalem to come see Jesus, and Jesus says, oh, nice to see you. Why don't we meet back in Galilee? And then Mary Magdalene says, shoot, I got to go all the way back up to Galilee now to find Jesus again. Could have saved you all the money you wasted on a trip to the Holy Land so that my relatives could sell you a vial of dirt from their backyard for you to take back and say, Terra Sanctum. Are you kidding me? Stay in Galilee and I'll catch up with you very soon. Instead, you're going to be chasing me back to Galilee, Mary. Come on. The word goes where it's going to go. And this is the fact. So just as God defeated Pharaoh and his army with the Red Sea, he defeated the Roman army with the earth. As soon as he put his son in the earth, he was able to go and do whatever he wanted to do next. Neither the Romans nor death itself could control or manipulate God's son and thereby God's word. God's word was always going to go out, and it was always going to go where it was going to go. God can't be limited. And this is the thing that's so difficult, because when people say, how could God allow this to happen? You don't know how God allowed this to happen, but he did. But then someone say, yeah, but I don't believe that God does such mean things. Well, then who do you think did it? Did somebody else do it? If someone else did it, it was either because God allowed them to do it or because somehow they overpowered God's will to do it. We know the second isn't possible. So even if someone does do something mean, we know that it's with God's permission or even more strongly with his volition. He wants it to happen. Mary and the other Mary are having to come to terms with this. They had to come to terms with this last time because they thought they were going to a burial And instead, they went to an epiphany where an angel came from heaven with lightning and the whole fireworks to say, this isn't where the action is. There's nothing to see here. So it's time for Mary and the other Mary to leave so they can go and hear the word where Jesus is ready to preach. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. What's really interesting about this translation, Richard, is it falls short on so many levels. In the New American Standard Bible, it says, and behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. But in the Greek, it says, aftes legon gerete. Jesus met them saying rejoice, which is not something that should be overlooked. It's not a simple greeting. He met them, and his first statement was rejoice. Remember that these women, whose names mean bitter, 
are staring into the abyss of the grave. They are afraid, and they've just received the news of the crucifixion and the resurrection coming from the angel, the herald, the messenger, but symbolically from the apostle Paul, the news that he is not here. He has risen. Look, he's no longer lying in the place. The tomb is empty. I mean, they've heard this, that he's going ahead of them into Galilee, who moved the cheese, all of it. And now Jesus is coming to them. He's going on the offense. And he's telling them, rejoice, rejoice. And they took hold of his feet. And this reference to the word feet is technical. It's the same terminology that Paul uses in Romans when he says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news of good things. This is a reference to Paul, but it's also a reference here to Jesus Christ. Paul and Jesus are linked. But it's also used again in 1 Corinthians in chapter 16, it's the same terminology again. It's the word pus when Paul talks about the God of peace crushing Satan under your feet. How does he crush Satan under your feet? By the word of power, the word of the gospel. If you walk according to the gospel, if you rush to preach the gospel, then there is hope and there is cause for rejoicing. The gospel has been liberated. Jesus has been set free from the tyranny of Jerusalem, from the tyranny of the temple, from the tyranny of the tomb carved in stone by the hand of man. And now he is free to walk out in the open and to carry the Torah to the nations. So they take hold of his feet and worship him. Let's hope they don't hang on to his feet too hard, though, and try to stop him from walking, Rich. And there's another layer to this, which is not only are Jesus's feet blessed because he's going to go teach the gospel, but Jesus stopped them as they were running to bring his word to their disciples. They were on their way to evangelizing his disciples. So even their feet are blessed because they're bringing the gospel to Jesus's disciples. And as they're running along, Jesus is like, hey, oh, babe, by the way, hello, greetings. I like how you brought this out because this word for greeting that you use in a letter of salutations means rejoice. The greetings to rejoice as they are going and delivering the gospel to his disciples stops him because he is the one who brought the gospel to them. Remember I said that this chapter is the last chance for the disciples. It is very fortunate for the disciples that these women decided no longer that they were going to stand afar off and watch, but they got their feet engaged so they could go and deliver the word. And this is when Jesus found them, or when they found Jesus, because Jesus met them when they were in the midst of delivering this word right? Jesus is there when you're delivering the word. This is what the women understand. This is why they worship him, because they see that he was alive as the angel had said, that they finally heard the news, the gospel, that they were supposed to be hearing all along about the resurrection, and now they're seeing it. But we know that it's not about seeing the resurrection. It's about hearing about the resurrection. It's about speaking 
of the resurrection. It's about the word, and it's the word that goes out to Galilee. This is how Mary Magdalene could have saved time, because the word eventually is going to make it out to the Galilee. It's really unfortunate that they lost this meaning of the rejoicing in the translation. And it's sad because they also dislocate verse 9 from verse 10. Jesus met them saying rejoice, then Jesus said to them in verse 10. It's the same verb. And they just, they change it. You know, why? Because they're trying to make it flow in English. They're trying to adapt it to the meaning that they think is somehow faithful to the original, but they're actually killing something about the original text. Because again, the proclamation of the crucifixion and the resurrection is transforming the fear of the women standing at the tomb from an ungodly fear into a godly fear that is mixed with joy and rejoicing. This is an extremely important point at this stage of the narrative. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. So this amplifies the point you made earlier. Jesus is rushing to preach the gospel. How beautiful are the feet of the one who runs to preach the gospel, to crush Satan underfoot in anticipation of the coming kingdom. The resurrection is the first fruits of the kingdom. This is very critical. It's being ushered in. This is the first sign of the coming kingdom. That's where Jesus is going, to Galilee. And they're going now to rescue the unbelieving men of the institution who were supposedly the closest to Jesus, who kept throwing Jesus under the bus. <laughs> so it's like two ships passing the night. You go your way, I'll go my way, and hopefully we'll get this job done. That's a good observation, Rich. Yeah, the first thing Jesus says is to go gather them and tell them I'm going to meet them in Galilee. So they're the ones with the invitation that they have to deliver. Now, the narrator and Jesus make a different move here because the narrator says that they went to bring word to his disciples. And he says here, tell my brothers, the feasts, tell my brothers. So the kinship word here makes it sound a little bit like there may be a subset among the disciples. Either that or he is really nice and he thinks of his disciples as brothers. I would probably... Oh, come on. Oh, come I, on. You know that can't be. Would, come on. I disagree with that one, Father. So I wanted another alternative. <laughs> the alternative would be that there's a subset of people who hear him and obey him. Those are his brothers and sisters and mother. Those who would be faithful are the ones who would go to Galilee. Go tell the ones who have ears to hear, who want to hear and do and be faithful to my word, let them know where they can find me. Because Jesus stopped them as they were going out to preach the gospel, and as the brothers, the disciples 
who are willing to teach go out, they're going to find Jesus along the way as they go to Galilee. It's a double-edged sword because the same teaching, the teaching to which you refer, also talks about family in the pejorative sense of kinsmen and tribe. And it's differentiating. Again, we've talked about this ad nauseum. This statement that a prophet is not welcomed by his own family and his own tribe is not a fortune cookie about your relatives. It's a critique of nationalism. It's a critique of tribalism. It's a critique of institutionalism. It's a critique of identity. Now, nationalism as such didn't exist in the classical world, but the same mechanism of putting your tribe, your clan before your neighbor has always existed in some form or another. And at the root of that is good old-fashioned family values. I'm often critical of American culture, but sometimes I'm really critical of Minnesota culture because it has a very staunch, inward-looking sense of itself with respect to family values, which destroys community in Minnesota. It does, and they don't understand it or see it because they're so inward-looking. And that's what's being critiqued here. So on the one hand, it's exactly what you said, but related to that in the very same Mashal and Matthew is this warning against your, quote, kinsmen and your family that the Lord is coming to break up the family in the same sense of the spreading out of the nations in Genesis. You have to break it up and spread it out because God is very concerned not with Ham or with Shem, but with Ham and Shem and Japheth together because he's interested in the oneness. So you have those who are faithful to the name and then you have the hotheads, <laughs> the city builders, the sons of Ham. So you have the shepherds, and then you have the sons of Ham. And then you have Jepheth, who represents the oneness of humanity, who's kind of in the middle, because God holds all of it in the palm of his hand. He doesn't hold one tribe or family or one line. In the Gospel of Matthew, mercifully, the rain falls upon the just and the unjust. So go let the family know we're about to expand. <laughs> it's beautiful, Rich. It's just a beautiful teaching. Now, while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. Who moved the cheese? Jesus is on the move, the women are on the move, and the chief priests are clueless. So they're catching up after the fact that Jesus is up in Adam, the women are informing the tribe, or the brothers, however you want to take that reference, Richard, and the chief priests are the last to know. They're going to wake up and read about it in the news. The ones who consider themselves the brokers the ones who consider themselves in control and the masters of God's instruction are learning about God's instruction 
and Jesus carrying God's instruction forward. They're learning about it from the bloody custodians, from the Roman guard. Can you imagine a chief priest learning about the movement of the Torah from a custodian in the Roman ranks? It's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. It's embarrassing sociologically that you're using Romans as your informants to spy on the movement of the Torah among the Gentiles. And it's embarrassing on the symbolic metaphoric level that you're being educated by a Roman soldier. It's a big joke. Well, there's no way that chief priests could be hanging out in a graveyard. They can't have any contact with the dead, otherwise they become impure. And so they have to count on someone else spending their time in the graveyard on their behalf. Unfortunately, where all the action was, where all the news was happening, was in the graveyard. So they had to depend on the Gentiles for that. Well, if you want to be near God, you got to go to the unclean places, unfortunately. The unclean and empty place, which this one happened to be, too, where there was nothing, that's where they had to go. Now, here's a distinction. The soldiers saw the earthquake, the lightning, the angel. He's not here. They got to see all that. But Jesus took the women, the Marys, to the side and that's when he greeted them. He didn't greet everybody. He Just the ones that were running off to tell the disciples, to tell the brothers. The soldiers only saw the angel and the lightning and all that business, the earthquake. So evidently, these soldiers are impressed by earthquakes. The one was impressed at the crucifixion. Now they're impressed by the earthquake during the resurrection or right after the resurrection or however that worked. This is what they're paying attention to, and this is where the news is. The news is not happening inside the temple. The news is not happening inside Jerusalem. It's happening in a graveyard outside of the city, outside of the temple, where there are only a few Gentiles sprinkled in and a couple of Marys. Those are the only people around who are alive, probably a lot of dead people around, but those are the only living people around. And an angel shows up, sent directly from heaven. This is the action. This is where it is. So like you said, Father, if you want to hear the gospel, you have to go to that place where there's emptiness and dead men's bones. That's where you find the word. This is what God tried to teach Ezekiel. This is what the angel tried to teach both the Marys and the soldiers, but the soldiers were more interested in saving their own behinds, so they went and told the chief priest right away, letting him know, hey, by the way, that dead guy you gave us escaped. However that happens, but they knew that they needed to say something. This is the result of being more worried about oneself and preserving oneself than about the teaching and preserving the teaching. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.